Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DeVias. Tonight's guest is baseball writer Tom Henninger. Tom, when he is not writing books, serves as the editor of Baseball Digest. He hails from St. Paul, Minnesota, and has been a lifelong Minnesota Twins fan. His work has appeared at ESPN Insider, and for 17 years he wrote for Stats, where his column Tom's Take ran on a weekly basis. He has authored player profiles for Baseball America and contributed to Play It Again, Baseball Experts on What Might Have Been. In 2019, he published his first book, Tony Oliva, The Life and Times of a Minnesota Twins Legend. And last May, Tom Tom released his latest book, The Pride of Minnesota, The Twins in the Turbulent 1960s, an affectionate history of how the Minnesota Twins became a power in the American League amidst the turmoil of the 1960s. Tom, welcome to the show. My first question is this. What inspired you to write your second book, The Pride of Minnesota? Well, to be honest with you, it was a bit of a spinoff from the Oliva book. Uh, that book originally had long narratives about the 1960s pennant races, and uh, working with my editor, he thought they were a bit of a distraction from Oliva's story. And uh, so, you know, as those pages were removed, I had the, uh, you know, the core of a new book. And uh, and then at some point, I decided I wanted to integrate uh, some of the events and the key happenings of the era, and and I had a new book. You know. Now, Tom, well, how, how did it come about that the, the old Washington Centers became the Minnesota Twins? What led them to re- relocate from the nation's capital to Minneapolis-St. Paul? Well, Calvin Griffith will tell you it was, it was more about poor attendance, but part of that equation, of course, was that they had been quite lousy. Uh, uh, the Senators played their last World Series in 1933, and in their last 27 years in Washington, they only posted four winning records. And uh, they didn't finish in the top half of the eight-team eight American League uh, after 1946. So, uh, you know, the team has been dreadful for a long time. Uh, Griffith long wanted to move out of Washington. And uh, when expansion took place, uh, that opportunity, uh, you know, presented itself. So uh, he jumped at it. He did some negotiations to make that happen. And, of course, Washington got an expansion team at that time in 1961. During the early years, the first couple seasons when they were playing at Minnesota, who were the Twins' early stars? Well, it was definitely Harmon Killebrew and Bob Allison on the offensive side. Uh, they had both emerged 59 as, as stars. Allison won rookie of the year that year. And Killebrew had his first big home run year. And they were both still very young. And then on the pitching side, both Jim Cotton and Camilo Pasquale had emerged as guys to build a rotation around. So they, you know, they had a couple core guys there. Those were really the four. And then starting in 1961, a string of you know very talented rookies started appearing. And every year there were a couple of guys that uh, you know really emerged and became core guys. And the Twins became very good very quickly. Besides uh, Camilo Pasquale and Jim Cott, were there any other key pitchers? Well, uh, they had a lot of young guys they believed in, and uh, they were spotty as far as having early success. Uh, Dave Boswell was one, and he finally had his big year in 69. Uh, Jim Merritt was another, and Merritt actually played a key role in some of the pennant races down the stretch at the end of the decade as well. Uh, 
you know, it was kind of a hit and miss. Uh, there were guys like Dick Stigman and Lee Stang and a handful of guys that they that that were part of the rotation early on. But uh, it, you know, really, it was it wasn't until late in the decade you could say they had three, four guys that were really the kind of guys you wanted on a contending team. Okay, how did the Twins discover Tony Oliva? Who scouted him? Uh, a guy named uh, Papacho Cambria. He was the only he was the only guy scouting Cuba uh, for virtually all of the 40s and 50s, I believe. And uh, he basically had a relationship with the Griffith family. So the Twins kind of had this pipeline that was almost exclusively theirs. The the Reds tapped into it a bit because they had their Triple H team in Havana at the end of the 50s. Uh, the Phillies came up with Tony Taylor. So there were a few, but. The Twins had this untapped source, and uh, you know it brought a lot of talent to them. Pasquale, Pedro Ramos, Zorla Versailles, Tony Oliva, Sandy Beldespino. It really, uh, it really filled in the gap for a for a franchise that didn't have a lot of money and didn't spend a lot of money. Is it accurate to say they, along with the Pittsburgh Pirates, were one of the first major league teams to really tap into the Latin American market for talent? Yeah, that largely that's true. That's that's largely true. I think the White Sox would have to be identified as well. Though. Yeah, you know the White Sox. Well, they had Minnie Minot, so there were some Cubans as well there. And uh, uh, and there again, I think that had a lot to do with Bill Beck, who was a more open-minded owner than a lot of the other owners. So it was one of the three teams that I can think of that really, uh, you know, first tapped into the the Latin the Latin player pool. What was Tony Oliva like as a player since you wrote his biography, you know, and he just, and, and, and finally he got elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, you know, congratulations on that, for, to him for that. What was he like as a baseball player, for, especially to our younger listeners who, you know, it, oh, he's a, literally a blast from the past. What was he like as a baseball player? What was his style of play? Uh, very much a free, a free swinger, uh, but what was remarkable about him is he could hit almost any type of pitch. Uh, they had taped balls up as kids in Cuba to keep a ball in play, and it, you know, that kind of ball moved a lot. So he ended up, he was a remarkable breaking ball hitter, and he was also a remarkable bad ball hitter. He was the kind of guy you'd see him hit a ball a foot off the ground and uh, like a tee shot for a golfer and then drive it off the wall. And, you know, he might take a pitch inside, you know, up in his eyes and go the other way with it. And he had incredibly strong wrists, and so... Uh, there were a lot of pitchers that told me that he could hit a ball the opposite way as hard as a lot of people, you know, hit when they pulled the ball. And, uh, you know, you really from 1964, he, he was rookie of the year, won the batting title, won the batting title again in 65. And uh, the only person to do it two times in a row, you know, in the first two years of his career. And then in his eighth season, he suffered a significant injury. But in those that eight-year period, 64 to 71, he ranked with all the leaders. Uh, you know, he, no one hit more doubles in that stretch. Uh, he, I think he was third in total bases. He didn't hit a lot of homers, but with all those doubles, and he had some speed until the knee injuries took place. So he was very much a complete ball player and, uh, really, you know, really kind of got lost uh, among all voters once the knee injury happened. What position did he play? He was an outfielder, right? Where, where in the outfield did he play? Uh, he played right field. Okay. Um, he was... He was very raw when he came over, actually. The Twins weren't going to sign him. He couldn't catch a fly ball. He just hadn't had enough coaching. But he became a very solid defender, uh, not an elite, I don't think, as a fielder, but he had a remarkably strong arm, just a terrific arm, kind of Roberto Clemente kind of arm. So, 
here's here's another obscure figure from the past that people don't really remember much now but you talk about in the book please tell our listeners about zoyo versalis who was the american league mvp in 1965 and then interestingly after that at mvp season he was never really the same again as a player i mean the stats when you look at his stats there was an abrupt drop off tell us about versalis and also do you have any explanation about why after 65 his productivity really dropped off yeah, there, I think there is an explanation. He, he came up in 61. Uh, I believe he was 21 years old. He was just a kid. Uh, wiry little guy, but had some pop. You know, he's been a lot of doubles. Decent number of homers for a shortstop in his day. And uh, Billy Martin took over as third base coach in 1965 and mentored him and really bolstered his confidence. Uh, Zoila was uh, not a very confident guy. De- definitely... Um, very inconsistent early on. Martin got him pretty much on an even keel and kept him in the game, you know, from start to finish. He dropped off in the second half. Usually that did not happen that year. He, uh, with Martin's coaxing, he was just terrific. He, the, 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 the rule was that if the ball was still on the ground in the outfield, when you reached the base, you took the next base. And he was just taking the extra base all season long. Uh, just really led a lot of rallies. Terrific player. Some people thought he was a weak choice, but you know, you, if you review the season, he was involved in so many late rallies. And there was a lot more pop in 65. And unfortunately, well, one Flint player told me he thought he was a different player after 65. He thought he was more of a home run guy, more of a power guy, and thought that really worked against him. He really uh, didn't tap into what worked for him previously. And, and then shortly after that, back injury started becoming a severe problem for him. So, but part of it was thinking he was a different player. And like I say, in time, injuries took their toll as well. Tom, please tell our listeners about Sam Mealy, who managed the Twins for pretty much most of the decade, during the early years, and especially in 65 when they won their first pennant. What was he like as a manager? I mean, tell us about him. How did they find Sam Mealy? Well, he was very much a player's manager. He had been a player for a long time. He's been a, he made Ted Williams for a stretch. Um, I think he was one of those guys who he would criticize in person with you, but you weren't going to hear it in the press. And uh, there weren't a lot of rules. This is something that the players liked and they responded to. Uh, but it was something that you know, worked against Cal Griffith. Griffith didn't think he was tough enough. But remarkably, the Twins won 91 games, both in 1962 and 1963. The franchise hadn't won 90-plus games since the last World Series in listeners talk about the brand of baseball that the the twins played in the 1960s was it a a power team that emphasized the big inning was it more a lot of extra bases i mean describe you know their their characteristics as a team yeah they really were a power laden team uh you know children was hitting 40 homers consistently i think both call jimmy hall in 63 as a rookie and tony elise in 64 as a rookie top 30 homers 
Uh, Allison was a 30 homer guy. Uh, in 1965, I believe six guys hit 20 or more. Now we're talking about a pitcher-friendly era. That was really unusual. Uh, but was it? What was interesting about that is that in '65, when Martin became the third base coach, uh, they became a running team as well, and uh, taking the extra base, uh, stealing bases. Uh, they would, everyone had sliding drills in spring that year, even the pitchers. And uh, going first to third was a big thing. The hit and run was. And so in '65, they became a very multi-dimensional team, and you know, hit one of a pennant. Undoubtedly, that that change was key to them. And then Martin became the manager in 69, and he kind of reproduced that, that mentality when Cruz stole home seven times that season. season and I think Kilbrew stole seven or eight bases that year. Everybody ran in 1969. In fact, if I recall correctly, in 69, Rod Carew tied a major league record. He stole home, was it seven times that season? Yes, and at that time it was thought to be a tie. And then uh, a subsequent research show, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago or so, uh, they revealed Cobb had another one. So actually, I think now I believe it's viewed as Carew finished one behind him and for the American League record. But at the time, it was a very exciting thing. He did tie. Um, he had a couple chances late and didn't get that eighth one. And he was only thrown out once. So, how Tom, how many old twins were you able to interview for this book? Were you able to interview any of the old players? Uh, quite a few over time. Um, quite a few guys were gone. Uh, Earl Fadden passed away around the time I got started. I tried to reach him. But the guys I talked to were kind of the, the core guys. Herman Kilpatrick gave me a lot of time. Uh, Frank Quillacy, who was a player and a manager, you know, more or less in that era, gave me a lot of time. Jim Cott, uh, uh, Al Worthington, Dave Boswell. Oh, boy. Um uh, and go to an Oliva, of course. And Rod, I sat down with Rod Crew once. So, so I, I talked to most of the core guys at least once, the guys that were still with us. So Oliver was gone by then, Jerry Zimmerman, Earl Batty. There were quite a few that have already passed away, and, and several of the ones I talked to have passed away since. Let's get back to Jim Cott, because we talked about him earlier. What was he like as a pitcher? Because I know he pitched for the Phillies in the late 70s. I think he was at 287, 288 wins career lifetime. Yeah, yeah. what yeah. was he like as a pitcher? Uh, not really that much of a hard thrower. Um, in fact, one time I been, I was talking to him about pitchers today and how everything's maximum effort. He said he threw maximum effort for velocity maybe five or six times a game. That was it. So, you know, he really was very astute, very smart guy. He was great at mixing the pitches, moving in and out, getting his spots. And, uh, you know, he won 25 games in 56. Uh, he didn't win the Cy Young because it was only one award at that time, and a, a man named Sandy Kovacs won it. But, uh, you know, really remarkable for a lengthy career. In 67, he blew out his elbow and it would have required Tommy John surgery but the surgery didn't exist and he could throw he, did, he you know didn't have his stuff but he he didn't have pain so he kept pitching and of course he pitched for what 25 years yeah and, and after that he won 20 games twice with uh, the White Sox in the mid 70s and uh you know the longevity was kind of held against him but boy you have to be a remarkably consistent pitcher 
to last that long and be used. You know, he didn't sit on rosters and not get used. You know, right? He well, he won a World Series with the Cardinals, I think, for them in '82 when he was in his 40s. So. Yeah, uh, and, and even more amazingly, in '65, he beat Koufax in Game Two. Now, when you talked to Cut, did you talk about that Game Two? What were his memories of that Game Two win? Yeah, I talked to him about a bit, and believe it or not, that was the one game of the series I got to see. Oh, wow, wow. You know, and the Twins went up 2 nothing, and everything looked really well, and, you know, then they hit the, the Dodger wall of pitching after that. But the talk talks about how, you know, it was a rainy, wet day. They had helicopters out on the field before the game to dry the outfield, and it was just kind of a miserable day. I, I don't think it rained a lot once the game started, but... Top, uh, top was in, you know, warming up to the bullpen, and Kofax wasn't far, far away, and he heard Kofax say something to someone here. How the hell do they play in this weather? Scott uh, said, you know, that was about the moment I realized if we were ever going to beat Kofax, it was going to be under these conditions, and of course they did. So uh, they think I think they won five two that day, but then Kofax shut him out to, in game five and game seven. So it didn't end well. Tom, you kind of alluded that you were there at that game, too. You kind of anticipate my next question. How much of this book is a personal story as well? I mean, how old were you during the 1960s? And how often were you like a direct witness to what was going on with the team during the decade? Well, I certainly read box scores and stories every day, but it's nothing like today. I mean, I think they showed 50 games on TV. Uh, you know, it is a personal story, certainly on a, a, a broad level, but when I started doing the research, I realized how little I really remembered and how much more there was to discover. So, uh, yeah, definitely there were some core memories that guided where the book went, but uh, I learned an awful lot doing it. I, I didn't remember as much as I thought I did, and I guess that's not all that surprising. So I happened to be 13 I be in 1967. I became a teenager in, in 67. So... I was a fan from day one in 61 when I was seven years old and uh, you know, pretty much looked at the box scores, I think, at seven years old almost every day. So. Now, Billy Martin got fired. I mean, I, I'm kind of curious. When you talk to Dave Boswell, remember, he got into that infamous fight with Billy Martin in the 69 season. What are his memories of that? I mean, what was his version of the story? Um, wouldn't talk about it. I didn't get a lot of time with him, and I so I didn't get a chance to really, uh, you know, develop some warmth with him and get him to talk. There were there, there were things like that that hardly anyone would talk about. Uh, also, with a, a time when he pulled a gun on the uh, on a team bus in '67 and created quite a, quite a ruckus, and people just really didn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, the the story goes, you know. Martin and Boswell went toe-to-toe. Uh, you know, a number of people told me Martin got some help. Uh, he was friends with the bar owner, and apparently the bar owner may have been holding uh, uh, Boswell for some of that. Uh, you know, he, It was hard to really clarify much of anything. By the time I wrote this, of course, both, uh, or by the time it published, actually both contestants had passed away. Uh, I talked to Boswell actually during the, the Oliva work, so... I never got another chance there. He did pass away as well. So the two participants were no longer with us. And, uh, you know, in the end, all we really know is Boswell came away with 20 stitches in his face, and Martin had seven stitches in his right hand. So Boswell missed about three weeks, and it actually ended up being a blessing. He, he pitched the whole season with bone chips in his elbow, 
and uh, ended up winning 20 games, but the, the time off helped him. He was much better down the stretch after he came back from the fight. That fight happened late in the season, and uh, the last six weeks, Boswell was terrific. And then Billy Martin, do you think the fight played a role in Billy Martin getting fired after the season ended? It was definitely a, a factor. There were a number of them. One, uh, there were several. One was that he, uh, Martin chose to start Bob Miller in Game Three D of ALCS, uh, which you know was a best of five. The Twins were down two zip, and Miller got Miller got blown out pretty much. Uh, Kelvin Griffith wanted Cotton to start. Cotton was the only starter that really had success against the Orioles that year, and it is surprising looking back why he wouldn't have started Cotton, but. Miller had come up big for Martin that year, and, and Mark fell loyal to him and started him instead. There had also been a blow-up with the um, uh, with the, the farm director and Martin over uh, where players were being sent to the minors, and that was something that was off-limits to Martin, really. But uh, in the end, it was kind of rated that, you know, there had been a general insubordination by Martin throughout the season. Uh, including also just not drinking in the same bars as players was something that <laughs> didn't stand. So, you know, and of course that eventually led to fights. But uh, so there were a number of factors, uh, you know, and it was something Twins didn't, Twins fans didn't forgive Griffith for, for well, forever, for many fans. I Was it someone, was it Billy Martin in his memoirs or some accounts suggested that Bill Rigney, who succeeded Martin, kind of broke up that Twins team, that, that really did well in the 60s. Is that true? Did Wrigley really kind of do that? Did he kind of break up the team? Oh, I don't really think so. The Twins, a lot of the guys who were on the team in 65, their better days were behind them, a lot of it because of injuries. There was starting to be a turnover. In both 69 70s, those teams were starting to be markedly different than you know what the decade started with. And at the start of the decade, it, you know, it looked like this core was going to be with them for a very long time. So the turnover was happening already. I think the big thing at the end of the decade is uh, the talent, the talent quit coming. You know, Rod Crew was the last big uh, development project that was a big success, and he surfaced in '67. So there really not much came down the pipeline after that. Y11 came up in '70 and and really helped save that season. The Twins were really hurting for pitching. And, you know, Blylevin, of course, became an, a, a star and a Hall of Famer, but the talent just wasn't there. And, it, you know, in 71 is when it really dropped off. So there again, I don't know, you know, Wrigley might get blamed for that a bit, but even by 70, at the end of 71, both Harmon Killebrew and Tony Lieber are playing essentially on one healthy leg. Uh, Killebrew with football injuries, uh, Lieber from a dive, you know, in a game in June 71, and he was never the same. And, and both of those guys, their power dropped off markedly in 72. So yeah, I think it was more factors of age and, you know, the fact that there weren't a lot of new players coming up. Tom, how big – do we just got word like a couple – a week or so ago, how – with that Jim Conn, Tony Leva just earned induction in the Baseball Hall of Fame. How For you personally, how big of a thrill is it? And as editor of Baseball Digest, did you personally help in the campaign to get them in? And also, will you personally attend the induction ceremonies next August? Yes, I uh, I have hotel room booked for my first induction ceremony. I will make the trip. Uh, uh, very excited, very thrilled for both of them. Actually, I think you know Oliva. You know the take was he didn't have enough lead seasons, and then God, it was the opposite. It was longevity, and he you know was just accumulating numbers. But I think both of them deserved it. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled. Yeah, very, very much thrilled with the result. I did actually write a uh, piece on why I thought Oliva uh, belonged, 
and I posted on my author page on Facebook, and uh, Bert Flyleven picked it up, and it went viral big time. Now, I don't Ooh. know who read it. Flyleven was on the committee for the early era, the other committee that was voting. Uh, Crew was on the one with, uh, with you know, voting on Aliva, and I know Crew's seen the book. Essentially, what I wrote came from the book. So, you know, I don't know if I had much of an impact or not, but I was just blown away how uh, when Blylevin shared my Facebook post, it, it just went crazy. That's beautiful, though. I mean, I, you know, I, I prefer, I'm glad that they got in as opposed, you know, and Gil Hodges, too, as opposed to some other names bandied about who I don't really want to talk about, you know, since they played in the steroid era and all that. I'm glad for their sakes, very much so, you know. Tom, what is your next Go ahead, Tom. Oh, I was just to say, and then Minnie Minoso and Buck O'Neill, too, for me. You know, those four alone, to me, I just, uh, you know, that's enough for me to go. And Gil Hodges is very good, too. I, you know, I can't, it's, I, I'm just thrilled about the, the class this year. And we'll see if we have a few more guys added in January. You're good. Tom, what is your next book project? And, uh, I mean, do you have any idea what's it going to be? And when can we expect its release? I don't have one at the moment. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what's next. I, I'm sure I will. I'm, I think retirement's not far off, and then I know I'll dig into something. But at this point, I'm kind of keeping busy with the magazine and, uh, uh, you know, content with that. You know, it's a lot of work when you're working a regular job on top of a book. And uh, there'll be another one. I, I have no idea at the moment, though. Are you tempted to ever write about the twins that won in 87 and 91? Because I'll tell you what. I, I was so thrilled when they did that in 87 and 91, those two series, you know, in the Homer Dome where they won all their home games while losing all their road games. I mean, I enjoyed that very, very much. Those are the two of my favorite World Series. Have you ever attempted to talk about those Twins teams? <laughs> You're not the first person to bring that up, and uh, it's possible. Yeah, that is something to think about. It would be a little easier. You'd have more more living members of those teams to talk to, and uh Memories would be a little crisper, uh, you know, asking guys what happened 60 years ago. Uh, it didn't always have a payoff on the first two books, but um, it's possible. That, uh, you know, it's been mentioned to me several times, so it, you know, that might very well turn out to be a, a, a project. Tom, whenever I interview an author, this is the last question, I always ask the standard question. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them inspire you to become a writer or perhaps influence your own writing style? Huh. You know, I I was a you know a, a mad baseball fan as a kid. I certainly was. I didn't read a lot of baseball books when I was young, but um, you know, over the years there have been guys that have really inspired the notion of writing a book. I didn't think much about writing a baseball book until 10, 15 years ago, and you know, by then I was 50 years old. So, uh, uh, but guys like Peter Golenbach, uh, there's a few of his books that just I uh, just thought, man, if I could write something anywhere near this good, I'd I want to try. And another one is Tim uh, Tim Wendo, and uh, those are two guys that I have found extremely inspiring as writers. But I'm I know I'm missing others, but I have to say the notion of writing a baseball book is a kind of a later thing in life for me. I, Yes, I've been a late bloomer in, in many, many ways. My wife will testify to that. But. Tom, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show. And when you come out with, when you do come up with your next book, please let me know. I want you on my show again, okay? And I'll help you do everything I can to help you promote it, okay? I'd love to do that. Thank you. Please take care. Please be safe, okay? You too. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing historian and author Patrick Piccolo. Thank you and good night.